to know that a single homogeneous narrative will not work, no matter where it comes from, no matter who is creating it, whether it's only the feminists or whether it's only the regenerationists, a single homogeneous narrative will not work. Human-centered is just another form of anthropocentrism. And anthropocentrism has brought us where we are today. This problem-solution trap is indeed a trap. You find a problem, you have a solution, you apply it, move on, next problem crops up from somewhere else. Because, again, we are playing that God trick of we know the answer. Hello and welcome to the Coconut Thinking Podcast. I'm your host, Benjamin Freud, and today's guest is Shahana Chattopayai. Shahana is a writer, speaker, synthesizer, and transition catalyst. Through her work, she researches and explores different pathways to civilizational transition toward life-sustaining and decolonial futures and counter-hegemonic narratives. She's the founder and director of a boutique consulting firm, Protiti, which is a Sanskrit word meaning wisdom that transforms. She's also a certified coach, facilitator, learning designer, and an organizational development professional with a focus on transformational learning and future of leadership. I came across Shahana in several of her articles on LinkedIn, and it seemed from her writing that we had a lot in common. Now, it's often on LinkedIn that you encounter people who seem to resonate. The conversation that we had really inspired me, really showed me different ways of thinking about ideas and questions that I had in mind. And I hope you, the listener, the same if you've been following the Coconut Thinking Podcast. I want to leave space for this conversation, not describe it too much, but really appreciate the voice that Johanna brings in terms of thinking about regenerative and post-regenerative practices, activism and post-activism, and how these are just words that we hold and let go. And the conversation that we had really took a life of its own. And that is probably the most alive kind of conversation I can think of. Check us out, www.coconut-thinking.com. Again, that's www.coconut-thinking.com. And in the meantime, I'll leave space for my conversation with Shahana. Well, good morning, Shahana. I'm looking forward to our conversation. I'm looking forward to hearing your story. I'm looking forward to finding out how the constellation of experiences, as you described it uh, in our pre-record, how those constellations come together and specifically in terms of your thinking and some of the material that you've put out there, the text that you've put out there about what organizations might look like, where the wayfinders might be, who the wayfinders are and what that might become as material and and to materialize in itself. I'll start off with the question that we ask all our guests, which is who are you and what story do you want to tell? Um, First, thank you. Benjamin, for having me here on this podcast with you. Coconut Thinking, I loved the name. I read the explanation behind the name and I welcome listeners to read it. It's intriguing. And um, so taking from there, who am I? Um, That's not an easy question, but I'll try to encapsulate it as much as I can for this present moment and for the people out there. So, On the surface, I'm a fairly ordinary middle-aged woman, Indian. Uh, I worked in the corporate world. I'm a mother, a grandmother, wife, daughter, all the different roles that society expects me to play. Uh, I spent about 20 years in the corporate, uh, in the L&D and OD uh, department, uh, capability development, human capability development. I traveled a lot. I enjoyed my work. I learned a lot, met fabulous people, fabulous teams, organizations, everything. However, end of two decades left me with more questions and kind of decreasing satisfaction at what I was doing uh, in my role, in my professional role, and how that was impacting me as an individual and also my let's say my values and beliefs. And I'll rewind a bit because I also grew up, literally we owned a bookstore and that plays a huge role in who I am today. I literally grew up reading books and books were not just entertainment for me. They were my friends, my guide, my mentor, uh, my philosophers and the characters were as alive to me as real people. 
So a Jane Eyre taught me as much as real people. So what happened was, I think now as I look back and as I kind of synthesize all of that reading and my corporate experiences and the fact that India is a kind of a triumvirate of casteism, patriarchy, and a sort of pseudo-capitalism didn't quite gel with the kind of person I had become. So after two decades of corporate hierarchy, seeing the command and control, experiencing it, seeing it work and also not work, um, and seeing the entire structure, the the foundational narratives that corporates run on, profit and predictability, constant productivity, constant need for efficiency, constant um, logicalization, reductionism, that everything has to be either planned, forecasted, uh, project managed, every problem has to be managed, every issue was seen as a separate thing, either to be managed or to be, you know, or to be obliterated. So that whole whole piece with my reading and my English literature background and my background of reading all kinds of authors, right from Che to Lenin to Marx to and others, Hannah Arendt or Virginia Woolf and the entire spectrum didn't gel. Here was a very complex, very intricate world. And here were organizations driven by only one parameter, only one paradigm, growth, profit, productivity, efficiency, power. And that, you know, after a point and also the whole societal structure of um, hierarchy, command and control and patriarchy, which was playing out in organizations as well, of course, Uh, there was hierarchy enough and there was patriarchy enough that completely... um, suffocated me and made me feel that organizations can be better. Because in my mind, organizations were always communities of intentional people who had who were gathered around or cohered around a certain purpose, certain intention. But after a point, I didn't feel that, no matter where I went, no matter where I traveled. There were fantastic teams and people and leaders. But, you know, when I looked at the overarching purpose, it was still about productivity and efficiency and profit and growth. And a constant bid to make the unpredictable predictable, to constantly trying to manage what was actually a set of systems problems. And coming from an OD perspective, I had also done enough of Margaret Wheatley and Donella Meadows and um, Gregory Bateson and, you know, that whole spectrum as well. So all of those worlds, if you might say, was kind of clashing inside me. One side, so I was in this paradoxical situation of being two, three different people, one inside the organization, one outside of it, one different person when I'm writing. And so after a point, seven years from now, seven years ago, I left the corporate world to sort of uh, sort myself out, if you will, and to really see where all my different, um, the feelers and these uh, urges and my questions and inquiries would lead me. I had no idea what I would do. I had no jobs. I had nothing planned. No, I I just knew that I had to step out to find out who I was and explore the questions that were really by then were driving me more than my profession. And I didn't feel it an integrity to take a paycheck and also, on the other hand, um, sort of lash out at organizations for being what they are, given the current economic structure that they function in. So I stepped out to explore the questions that were just, just would not let go of me. And uh, in that journey, I encountered again, a completely different journey. Initially, it was pretty random because I was just just going where my intuition and my uh, queries were leading me. So that took me to theory you, that took me into spiral dynamics, that took me into Ken Wilber's integral framework, that took me down a path of facilitation and coaching uh, of a different sort. And of course, overarchingly, uh, a few uh, voices continued to really guide me and I would say be my book mentors. I've always had mentors in the shape of books, right from my 
childhood. So Margaret Wheatley was one, Parker Palmer was one, uh, Otto Sharmer in some form, Joseph Jaroski in some form, my own readings of Jiddu Krishnamurti, Mahatma Gandhi, Rabindranath Tagore, and all the literature of my country. And uh, so those began to coalesce maybe six, seven years ago. And uh, as I left and as I died, uh, dove deeper, I encountered other communities like the regeneration community with people like Daniel Wall, uh, different, uh, not regeneration, but differently uh, works of Biokamolafe, Charles Eisenstein, uh, then the Schumacher College, Findhorn Foundations, all working in a certain direction where I felt that they were in different ways questioning the foundation civilizational narratives and in their different ways sort of trying to dismantle it, disrupt it, uh, question it. And yeah, so that's that entire journey and uh, sort of a synthesis of that, sort of diving into it and staying with it has brought me where I am today. And what you see in my writings are a a reflection of that journey, a reflection of my inner questions. I'm still questioning. I don't have the answers and I don't expect there to be answers. There aren't, you know, the silver bullet solutions that organizations so love. And there isn't going to be a 7S strategy framework like McKenzie would love. None of that is going to happen because I've, I think we are in not only in in between stories where one is dying and the other is yet to be born. But we are also in a very fluid world of intersectionality where the center is collapsing, if you know what I mean. The center that is the the, the European hegemony, the Eurocentric narrative that has been driving the show for more than five centuries is now disintegrating. You can literally see the torn fabrics and the torn threads. All we need to do is pull a few threads and it is unraveling at different uh, points. And uh, though there is, of course, a huge rush to keep it uh, going for however long as it's possible, because the earth itself is imploding in protest. But we also have on the peripheries and the margins who are no longer willing to stay in the peripheries and the margins. So you have those voices, you have that wisdom that has always existed now penetrating into the core. Sometimes they are being appropriated and uh, packaged and another silver bullet, but sometimes they're just existing in their context and culture. And that's what I'm really, really interested in. Uh, so when I talk about wayfinders as organizations, I see organizations who have the courage and the foresight to know that a single homogeneous narrative will not work, no matter where it comes from, no matter who is creating it, whether it's only the feminists or whether it's only the regenerationists, a single homogeneous narrative will not work. So I see Wayfinders as a holding space, organizations who have the courage to be pluriversal, who have the courage to invite the margins and centers and the, and work at the intersection of all those narratives, like weavers, you know, who can weave different colored threads together and still see a pattern and still find something coherent and beautiful in those very, very different twines and threads. So similarly, I see wayfinders as weavers and connectors and storytellers who can learn from the wisdom, but not appropriate, who can understand that pluriversal narratives will continue to exist and hold spaces for those very diverse, very uh, fluid practices and methods through different means. And that's what I've been writing about in the last five parts. One, of course, is I, I'm requesting them to slow down, slow down enough to see where you are to stay with the questions, not rush after answers because there aren't any right now. Slow down to even appreciate that we are on the brink. It's okay to be on the brink, but at least see that we are on the brink and where do we go from there? 
do we fall in the chasm or do we collectively build a bridge to the other side or to a different set of narratives and uh, yeah so that's uh, what i've been one of the questions that we're sure to ask every single time is how do you define learning now i've kind of thought of moving beyond that because defined means something definite and and maybe it's about what does learning mean to you And, and we've switched over to that in this particular case, I'm struck by the connections with uh, Peter Senge's work on, on learning organization. So I'm going to try to uh, get uh, two birds with one stone here and ask, what does learning mean to you within a learning organization, within the living system that is an organization? So about a couple, no, maybe three years back, three, three and a half years back, I started reimagining how learning needs to happen in a living system. So I was, so, and I called it emergent learning then. And I wrote a series of articles around this. And as I explored that space and going back to Senge's work and also going back to uh, models and frameworks, and I, I kind of use those words very cautiously because again, they mean something defined. I'm just using them as loose signposts, not something that is etched in stone, but loose signposts, uh, the theory you framework, some of the practices uh, over there. And as I sort of tried to go beneath that, you know, the practices are what is mentioned, like coaching or whatever. But as I tried to go beneath, a few very critical skills or capabilities or capacities became apparent that what and that became apparent to me as what I call uh, emergent learning or transformative learning. Learning is not, you know, uh, training has been the very, very uh, popular, uh, popular in organizations, but it's completely backward focused. It focuses on what worked well and then people get trained on it. SOPs and whatever worked well and then people are trained on that. What worked well in the past, training is essentially encapsulating that. Learning, continuous learning, peer-to-peer learning, collaborative learning, informal learning, all of that happens in the moment. Uh, As people keep sharing, uh, there are different methods uh, that have been advocated for that, whether you call it working out loud or other means of sharing, or whether you are part of a community, collaborative platform, whether it's a Twitter or a Yammer or a Jive, whatever. So I was an online community manager, so I was uh, taking care of that for organizations for a long time. But I stepped into, and I, I completely agree with Otto Sharma here when he says we need to learn from the emergent future. And that is what learning today requires a stepping into and holding space very spaciously, very gently, but with complete faith that there is learning happening and we can tap into that, learning from the emergent future. And as a slight detour, I'll just explain why I became so convinced about this because I personally experienced it. I had gone on a pop-up community. Uh, I had participated in a pop-up community about four and a half years back in Hungary, Budapest. And uh, this was uh, part of a teal community which had gathered around discussing reinventing organizations by Frederick Lalu. That was just the broad guideline. Nothing else was decided. And uh, we were about 25 uh, plus people, none of us knew each other from very different countries, cultures, contexts, and uh, experiences uh, from Europe, from Hungary, from USA, from me, from India, and uh, whatever. So when we gathered there, I saw what holding space and facilitation in the true sense, in the absolute sense of holding space and creating that, what uh, Otto Sharma calls the bottom of the U, the field, where you are literally manifesting what is a collective wisdom, not mine, not yours, but you're literally speaking from the field, can happen and it happens. And it might seem like magic, like there is some, but because the listening at that point becomes so generative, 
so attuned and the presence, the sense making, the complete presence of each person is so attuned to the environment. And this was happening in open air. So there was Lake Balaton and there were birds and there were, you know, uh, all kinds of things happening around us, the sounds of nature. But they were also part of that emergence. So what happened over there, and I've experienced it so firsthand, so I can speak for it, is true learning and insight emerged that none of us singly had, none of us had thought of, none of us came prepared to say, and none of us had even envisioned ourselves as thinking or saying it. And that was encapsulated in different ways. Uh, Otto Sharmer has Kelvi Bird gen- doing generative scribing. I think that's a fabulous method of collecting, of gathering collective wisdom as a part of a generative emergent process. Then I also have other uh, uh, processes, methodologies that I've uh, written about. But what I'm trying to say is, for me, learning, true learning is emergent learning that happens as it doesn't happen by rote. It doesn't happen uh, by looking at it. You can draw on past experiences, of course. All of us speak from past experiences. It's kind of in within us, even if we are not aware of it. But it happens when we are completely open generative in our being and listening, completely spacious with ourselves and others, and not pressurizing ourselves to be smart and intelligent and impressive and and what not. When we let go of all of that, then true learning can really happen. Yes, there is space for rote learning. There is space for training. There is need for uh, foundational learning. There is space for courses, formative learning, all, all of that, normative, everything. But if you have to make the leap into what we need to do manifest in the future, because none of us really know. We can't look at the past stories and say, oh, that's that worked, so this will work now. It won't. Then how do we proceed? Then what do we need to do? How do we sense make? How do we connect connect dots? How do we see the patterns? So all of those become a part of, I would say, sense making capacities, pattern sensing, uh, connect connecting dots, weaving, under hearing pluriversal voices, hearing what people are not saying. Also, being very willing to hear and stay and listen to the silences. I absolutely love this idea of hearing what people aren't saying because indeed silence is also communication, communication about what people have to say or afraid to say, but also about the power structures that silence, the power structures that allow those voices. And I'm particularly interested with this idea of the pluriverse and of pluricentrism, which Pluricentrism really means that there is no center in, in a certain extent because we we choose where the center is for that moment when it is something that we decide to cut and then we move on and we let it go like like water in our hands. And this is quite a leap for many of our ontological becomings in some way, or or as as Bio Akamalafe would say, but 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 specifically in terms of how we're used to grasping the world about having centeredness. I hear of human-centered design. I hear of schools that are student-centric. I hear of centering this or that need, the user experience. But the pluriverse really entails all of us having these different voices because it's post-identitarian. And so can we explore this in terms of how organizations are coming together within this idea of a wayfinder that go beyond identitarianism while at the same time appreciating we're not all the same, even if we are all in it together. So I love what you asked just now. That So so in the last few articles, I've been specifically mentioning we need to go beyond human-centered. Human-centered is just another form of anthropocentrism. And anthropocentrism has brought us where we are today. Again, Within anthropocentrism, not everyone has the same power, same status, same 
everything. No, they don't. But ultimately, that whole anthropocentric way of seeing the world, positioning humans at the top of an imaginary pyramid, when we are literally just part of the web of life, has, well, we are imploding now, right? So human-centered is gone. If we keep centering humans, we are just going to go from one pitfall to the next. I recently started trying to see what, so first of all, how do we move beyond centering? But yet keep or, or keeping wayfinders in mind when we move beyond centering, then what is the cohering identity? What is the cohering vision? that will, you know, sort of um, energizes, enlivens organizations to come together, people to come together, communities to form. So I was writing about biocentrism, basically centering life, centering the mysteries, the magic, the myriad abundance of life itself in all its forms whether it's a rock or a mountain or a stream or an ocean or a waterfall or a beaver or an, or an otter or, or a bear or a tiger or a human or an, even an ant or a bee, which are, they are very, very crucial to our existence or a coral reef or whatever. So how do we center this whole complexity of life and how do organizations, wayfinders, then envision reimagine, co-create, take decisions that are in, I wouldn't even say in support, that again puts us above them, above kind of nature, quote unquote. I would say in participation with life. So how do we, just like I said, in emergent learning, we are literally co-creating with the field and from the social field, not as individuals. Even a bird chirping becomes a part of that field in that moment. So similarly, how do wayfinders shift to life-affirming, life-sustaining biocentrism, which is really not centered on a specific identity, uh, a specific form of even human form, you know, whether a woman or whether a gender, whatever, say race, sex, caste, creed, religion, whatever. So post-identity, post-human, post all that we have been talking about, growth, blah, 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 and become containers for just upholding and service and in service to life itself and life in all its forms, life in how communities work, life in how societies stay abundant and stable and thriving. So basically the thriving and flourishing of life in all its forms, whether it's nature, whether it's human thriving, whether it's education policy, whether it's economic policy, whether it's in whichever way, in whichever field that organization happens to be uh, acting in, how do we impact that in favor of life? Now, it sounds like a pipe dream. It might even sound not only ideological, but beyond, like, beyond impossible, but I would say it's not. Because at one point, I'm sure, 500 or 200 or 100 years ago, Today's AI world would have seemed impossible, right? The the travel to the moon seemed impossible till someone sort of said, we'll put a man on the moon, and it happened. So similarly, lots of things that once seemed impossible has already happened. So I don't see why a different narrative that is life-sustaining and life cherishing and thriving and glorifies the thriving of life can't happen. So that's what I, that's what my call to wayfinders are because eventually with AI coming, with other Uber technology coming, with exponential increase in technology and exponential decrease of quote unquote human involvement in the day-to-day -day running of everything, 
we are going to have a implosive change in how our organizations function any which ways. It is going to change irrefutably. They cannot hold on to what has happened so long. So whether they like it or not, whether anyone likes it or not, it's going to change. So if it is going to change, if it is going to sort of implode and or explode, whichever, why not plant the seeds of a change that we want to see? Why let AI take over and drive us in a direction that we don't even know where we are going? Even the AI gurus are not so sure anymore. So can organizations, before they explode or implode and vanish into ether to be forgotten, will they have the courage of vision and of fearless imagination and of radical leadership to step out of that imploding treadmill of disaster and step on a different path that will call on all their resources, all their imagination, but in service to something much, much bigger than the identity of a few demagogic psychophants sitting in Silicon Valley. I hear the name Bayokam Lafe come back again, as well as one of his inspirations, Donna Haraway, who writes about staying with the trouble. And and Bio said uh, recently, I heard him um, and and uh, some of his writings talk about the fact that the problem and the solution trap that we're in. He 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 refers to the 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 death cycle of ants. How they because they're blind, they follow each other, follow their pheromones, and they go in circle until they die because they run out of exhaustion. And and he says that the problem solution way of thinking mentality just is, is a modernist construct, and it just leads to more problems. Whereas our responsibility now, and, and spelling it like Donna Haraway, response-ability, is about birthing the futures that we wish, staying with the trouble by, by bringing about the futures that we wish, rather than working within the constructs that we have trying to fix the problems. Just love to hear your thoughts on this. Just love to hear what, what you might have to say um, about this idea of birthing the futures that we that we wish and the presence because the future and the present are, are entangled. Thank you. Thank you for bringing up those two names that who have, again, influenced me greatly. So Donna Haraway keeps um, writing about or rather cautioning us against playing the God trick, you know, and the playing the God trick has gotten us where we are falling off the edge of the planet, falling off the edge of the entire universe. And Bioakamalafe's resounding call is for us to slow down. The times are urgent. And going beyond the fences, right? That's the name of his book as well. What I really love about their writing and what that has led me to think and also what I was telling you a little while ago is this problem-solution trap is indeed a trap. You find a problem, you have a solution, you apply it, move on, next problem crops up from somewhere else. Because again, we are playing that God trick of we know the answer, we have the solution. And the solutions are unfortunately arising from the same narrative that gave rise to the problems in the first place. So until and unless those paradigms shift, and that's difficult, that's hugely difficult. I'm not saying it's an easy task, but we have been shifting paradigms forever. But because they have been happening slowly, we didn't quite realize how how we have been shifting. But with AI, that shift has become exponential. Now everything seems to be changing at such a rapid pace that human mind, human cognition, and human responses are in unable to keep up. So we can do two things. We can still try to keep grasping at control when there is no nothing to control and no way we can control it. Or we can let go of that, let go of the problem-solution mindset, step out of that encapsulating uh, uh, kind of a, I would say, an, uh, almost, a, almost this... Uh, grip of 
our uh, own uh, you know this own misconception that we have a solution for everything or everything needs a solution what if it doesn't what if that problem is calling our attention to a crack that will lead us when we open it enter it go within that will lead us into the world that is infinitely more thrivable and sustainable and just different but we can't envision it so we are afraid to enter the crack we are afraid to go into the dark we are afraid to let go and sink into the ground and i that's what uh, i think wayfinders need to do to create spaces and containers and crucibles for people to enter those cracks that are opening up enter those cracks between problems and solutions let go of the problem let go of the solution mode and enter that crack that has opened up and see what the crack is telling us what what those cracks are inviting us into again we keep thinking that humans have to do all the thinking or it is up to a few handful of humans of from a handful of cultures who have to do all the thinking to be precise and because those handful of humans from a handful of cultures are invested with so much authority and power and responsibility they lose their sense of the ability to respond so they are not responding anymore they are merely going by their old paradigms of what worked in the past and somewhere the solution is still working coming from what worked in the past maybe in a different shape maybe with different words but it is still the same uh, fundamental narrative what worked in the past again anthropocentrism again human centric we have to let go of all of that enter the crack sense into this entire system sometimes know that problems will not have solutions because they are not problems they might just happen to be a symptom of something that our attention is being drawn to for obvious reasons for definite purposes so it, first of all we have to stop seeing everything as a problem we have to stop seeing every kind of disturbance as a problem every kind of issue as an issue to be solved as a challenge the moment humans here challenge they are up to sort of you know take it up everything is not a challenge every mountain peak is not a challenge it exists because it's a mountain peak it doesn't have to be scaled so how do we let, first of all i think it's a letting go of this wanting to play the god trick then is staying with the questions so deeply that eventually the answer comes collectively staying not individually collectively staying with the questions and third is inviting imaginaries and visionaries from every kind of field so it's not only you and me talking but it's the painters the artists the muralists the you know what uh, otto sharma uses the social presenting theater which is somatic movements so how do we invite all of those intelligences into a space of co-creation where people are where the container is safe enough for us to go inside the crack and stay in the crack and collectively in different forms come up with new visions in the world that might come about these new visions that might bring about new contexts new relationships also means the death of an old world which is okay but that death will come with significant and I'm looking for the word specifically because I want to introduce a new word but that world that is dying will 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 so, some will try to hold on to it i i want to throw out a word for you that that has troubled me and we share a same passion for che guevara and paulo freire so so this word is 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 really important but at the same time i i don't no longer know how to hold it which is the word resistance where does resistance come into play is it something that we want to continue to do what are we resisting against is it a question of just moving beyond resistance and 
birthing a world without this idea of of conflict that resistance might sometimes bring in. What are your thoughts on this, on 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 the, the resistance that we might have? You know, that's a, that's a wonderful question because whenever we use the word resistance from a human centric perspective, uh, we think of revolution, we think of rebellion, we think of um, force. You know, some kind of force being applied against something, whether it's a narrative, whether it's another person, whether it's a worldview, whether it's an ontology, whatever. We think of resistance as a using of force. But again, over the last few years, I've been reading up a lot about trees. And they also resist. Okay. For example, they resist an attack of pests. They resist an attack of uh, insects. So before we drowned them in oil-based fertilizers and pesticides, most natural native trees and plants have the capacity to produce chemicals that repel certain kinds of bugs and attract certain others that will protect them. That's clear resistance. And natural trees have a way uh, where, where their roots go so deep underground that the root system sends messages to other trees about the bugs that might be infecting them and caution them so that they can can start producing the said chemicals, required chemicals. Of course, this was before we went the monoculture path and uh, drowned them in pesticides. If you look at what happened to America and the Dust Bowl, the prairie grass has very, very deep roots, which hold on to the soil. So no matter what dust storms come, no matter the drought, it leaves very little impact. It used to leave very little impact till the prairie grass was cleared and we had rows of wheat and then it was gone. Now it's dust bowl. So that is resistance. But did they did not necessarily go and attack or rebel or revolt. Now, stopping here, I'm not saying we don't have to rebel and revolt and attack. We have to when we must but there is another deeper form of resistance that, as I was writing about wayfinders, that sort of uh, stayed with me. And thank you for bringing up this question. I would say the deeper form of resistance comes from the deeper narrative, the worldviews, the ontologies that we hold. So, for example, why is it that some people can resist the lure of a mall and not go on a shopping spree? And why is it that some can't? Why is it that some people are totally happy with little and doing what they want, going for hikes, whatever, whatever life? And why is it that some are not? So I think resistance is also just like in plants. It's an internal mechanism which helps them to fight off unwanted bugs. For us also, it's an internal mechanism which helps us to resist those narratives, those cosmovisions those ontologies that we know are inherently, overarchingly harmful to the to all sentient life, to a biocentric world, biocentric life on this planet. And why is it that the billionaires, triple billionaires sitting at the top of the hierarchy can't resist the lure of more wealth? Why? So what is lacking inside of them that their external greed is so very fast that nothing, it's they, their inside is like a hollow bottomless pit and no amount of wealth ever seems to fill it. No amount of power leaves them satiated. So, and yet I've seen resistance in the poorest of the poor who haven't fallen into the trap of just money. So resistance going back to wayfinders and organizations, lie in their foundational narratives, in the vision and imagination that organizations have, hold about themselves and their emerging future. And that becomes like their inner chemical, which helps them to resist the lure of, you know, uh, 
their share price or stockholder pressure or whatever faces that organizations have to face. It's not easy. It's not easy because we are still existing in the old paradigm. But the tears, the brokenness is apparent. And through those cracks, just like you can fall inside a crack, you can also escape through a crack. And uh, this reminds me of Leonard Cohen. The light appears through a crack. Ring the bells that you can ring. There is a crack in everything. And that's where the light gets in. And I think through those cracks, organizations can escape and build their resistance to the old narrative, through narratives, through their own different narratives, pluriversal narratives, by holding the vision together and not just on the shoulders of three and a half leaders sitting at the top who are so scared about their position and their share price that they are not going to take any decisions any which ways. So holding that vision of what we want together can help us escape through the crack just as we can fall into the crack and explore the crack. And this idea of bringing the voices together within the organization, of course, and, and that organization has porous walls because it takes into account the context, the, the, the natural world, the more than human world, other folks within the community, animals. How do we start to think, particularly I'm thinking in, in any organization, but let's, let's use schools as one of the possibilities to focus on. How do we start to have these conversations? How do we start to bring about these new forms of organization? How do we start to have wayfinders be the mode of interaction, interaction that we might that we might hold? What what are what are some of the things that not necessarily first steps in a linear path, but the spaces that we can open up? So I think schools, especially middle school, you know, when children are 12, 13, 11, 12, 13, would be the best places to start. I was a school teacher, classroom teacher. So uh, I come from a passion for teaching. And uh, teaching adolescents and uh, teens and 17, 18-year-olds, one thing I've seen is if you don't, squeeze them with syllabus and competitive exams and the pressure to get marks and scores and especially with this whole STEM thing, if you don't pressurize them into losing their enthusiasm, they are extremely open children, are curious and open by nature. And they are very, very willing to engage with the external natural world. And when we start introducing them, imagine telling a bunch of 13-year-olds that y'all are the wayfinders. Craft new stories of the world you want, not the world that is collapsing around us. And believe me, today's 13-year-olds who know way more than we ever did at 13. So when we tell 13-year-olds and define wayfinders for them, very, very simply about being vision holders for a future that they want, to step into the kind of world they want to see, paint it, draw it, sing it, dance it. Trust me, they'll do it. And trust me, their vision will be something that organizations cannot even compete with. And those visions, if the school is you know, thinking, I would say those visions coming from the children will be the ones the school itself will model it, uh, will be modeled around. And imagine telling 13, 14, 15-year-olds that your vision will be modeling how we teach the curriculum. You will be designers of the curriculum. You will be holding the curriculum. And we are just here to answer any questions you might have about the current state of the world, about the collapse of the world, about helping you to propagate your vision, about helping you with the logistics maybe. Maybe you need a singer, you need a dancer, you need some performance artists, you need some makeup, you need some. We'll do it, but let's you help us create the vision because you are the wayfinders. You are our guides and mentors. And we we failed in creating the world that is habitable and livable and abandoned. So you show us. Children will. They know. They instinctively, intuitively know. I love um, this idea of bringing in those different voices, which is exactly what you showed in, in real terms, what that might look like taking it from from the theory to on the ground, some of the conversations that might happen. 
to bringing it down to 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 something concrete. Shana, what what's next in store for you? What what is in your your short term, long term horizons? What what is what's some of the thinking, some of the doing that that lies potentially in front of you? So this so what I've been telling you, I've I mean I have these in bits and pieces. One is of course I want to write all of these down, give it more shape, give it more. I wouldn't even say coherence because I don't think they can be made coherent. They will be these pieces, but sort of put it together for whoever wants to use it in whichever way. And I also somewhere hope that these go out as calls to action to people uh, who think like us, who would maybe want to connect with me. There will maybe be people out there I can work with as co-create with, participate with in designing some of the spaces that I was, uh, that we were discussing in uh, literally um, piloting these as little pockets of the future, the little nodes that are already happening, you know, and uh, find how they can be woven together. So if people are out there who would like to interact, would like to go on this journey or organizations are out there who would like some kind of a steward or facilitator with them on this journey, then I would be love to be love to offer myself for that. So and write all of this down, have such conversations, spread these conversations as far as possible. And uh, yeah, so my I think uh, ultimately what whether it happens in my lifetime or not, what I'm really hoping for are organizations where people go because they know they'll thrive, their potentials will flourish, and collectively they'll be communities that are in service to life and not their lives in service to business and profit. And what's the best way for people to get a hold of you? I'm there on LinkedIn. I'm available on email. I'm I can be, I'm reachable, I'm on Twitter, but mostly LinkedIn is the easiest way to reach out to me. I check it, I'm very constant on it. Any message on LinkedIn and I always respond. And if uh, they are within India, they can call me on WhatsApp. I'm happy to share my number on LinkedIn with anyone who DMs me. And any sharing of thought anywhere on any platform, I'm happy to participate, join and dialogue. Listen, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you, Benjamin. This has been the Coconut Thinking Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Check us out, www.coconut-thinking.com. You can find articles, resources, more links to podcasts, and other things that uh, we find interesting. That's www.coconut-thinking.com. You can also check out Intrepid Ed, www.intrepidednews.com. We're in partnership with them every week. Thank you so much, and we hope to hear from you soon. Subscribe, leave five stars, and see you next time.